Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, listeners. This is Tom Myers. I am back, and Greg and I are putting together an amazing new lineup of shows for the spring. Now, while we're working on next week's newest episode, we thought we'd give you a little sampling of one of our favorite new shows. It's called History Daily. I am really excited to introduce the show to you. Um, If you haven't already heard it, I am a big fan of the podcasts American Scandal and American History Tellers, which are both hosted by the award-winning producer and narrator, Lindsey Graham. That's the podcaster, Lindsey Graham, not the political one. Right. And he brings some old-time radio drama techniques to exploring history. Um, And he does it again in his new show, History Daily, which takes you back in time every single weekday to explore a momentous event that happened on this day in history, whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, or to celebrate the 20th day of July, 1969, when mankind reached the moon. History Daily tells you the true stories of the people and the events that shaped our world, one day at a time. So we thought we'd give you a sampling of two episodes of History Daily that we think you'll enjoy. One on the great merging of circuses by impresarios P.T. Barnum and James Bailey. And after that, how about a little bit of Gay Paris with the opening of the Eiffel Tower? I mean, Paris and circuses, two of my favorite subjects. (laughs) After listening to these episodes, be sure to subscribe to History Daily wherever you get your podcasts. And Greg and I will see you next week. It's July 6th, 1944, and the circus has come to Hartford, Connecticut. Inside a big top tent, trapeze artists, lion tamers, and fire eaters dazzle the people of Hartford with astonishing feats. Thousands of people have flocked to the circus today, and there's not an open seat in the house. Backstage, a 45-year-old clown named Emmett Kelly waits for his cue to enter. As he stands behind the curtain, Emmett wipes his brow, taking care not to smudge his white face paint. It's a swelteringly hot day in Connecticut, and beneath his heavy costume, Emmett is sweating buckets. But soon, Emmett becomes aware of a noxious odor that's not just him. It smells like something's burning. And before he has time to react, someone in the audience shouts fire. As the audience panics, Emmett leaps into action. He runs backstage, grabs a bucket, and sprints to a nearby horse trough. 
After filling it with water, he hurries back into the big pot. But the fire is spreading fast. As flames crawl their way up the canvas walls of the tent, frightened audience members swarm the exits. Emmett spots a group of frightened children trapped in the bottleneck of the panicked crowd. Emmett runs in the direction of the children. He groans as he lifts up a heavy canvas wall. Holding it up, he ushers the children to safety outside. He's desperate to help more people, but there's only so much he can do. As the fire continues to consume the tent, his lungs fill with acrid smoke. Emmett staggers outside, and seconds later, the tent collapses in a fiery inferno. The Hartford Circus Fire of 1944 resulted in 167 deaths and 700 injuries. The cause of the fire is still unknown. At the time of the incident, the golden age of the American circus is coming to an end. With movie theaters luring audiences away from the big top, the time of trapeze artists and exotic animal parades is now a relic of the past. The incident at Hartford is tragic punctuation on the slow decline of the circus industry and the company who put on this ill-fated show, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus, a company built on ambition, rivalry, and ultimately two giants of entertainment, P.T. Barnum and James Anthony Bailey, who went into business and launched their first show together on March 28, 1881. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 28th. Barnum and Bailey launched the greatest show on earth. It's 1835, 46 years before Barnum and Bailey meet. In a dingy theater in Philadelphia, an old woman sits on stage before an enraptured audience. According to the advertisements hanging above the theater's entrance, Joyce Heth is 161 years old and a former nurse of America's first president, George Washington. Heth is a toothless African-American woman, and she regales the audience with tales of dear little George. Most of the onlookers gasp and titter at Heth's far-fetched anecdotes, but one member of the audience watches in silence, his mind worrying. After the show, the man approaches Heth's promoters. He introduces himself as Phineas Taylor Barnum and offers to purchase Heth from them. In 1835, slavery is technically illegal in Pennsylvania, but the trade of enslaved African-American people is still widespread. After lengthy negotiations, P.T. Barnum buys Heth for $1,000, or about $32,000 today. As Barnum travels back to New York City, he hopes his acquisition of Heth will mark a turning point in his fortunes, starting his career in show business. Though only 25, Barnum has already embarked on several failed ventures, including printing his own newspaper and purchasing a general store in Danbury in his home state of Connecticut. From a young age, Barnum has been convinced that he is destined for greatness. He will later reflect on his early life, stating, I had long fancied that I could succeed if I could only get a hold of a public exhibition. On the train back to New York, Barnum looks at his new star, her face lined and leathery with age. Barnum knows she isn't really George Washington's former nurse, nor is she 161 years old. But he also knows that doesn't matter. 
People believe what they want to believe, and P.T. Barnum is prepared to exploit that. He plasters the streets of New York with advertisements, and just as expected, the city's residents flock to see her. Barnum quickly recoups his $1,000, and when ticket sales in New York start to waver, he takes Heth on a grueling tour of New England. But the demanding schedule proves too much for Heth, and soon the old woman passes away at an estimated age of 80. But Barnum exploits her death, too. He stages a public autopsy in a Broadway theater before a shocked audience. The grisly spectacle sparks controversy, and the newspapers the following day are splashed with outraged headlines. But Barnum only relishes the attention. Still, for all his bluster and pomp, now without Heth, Barnum has nothing. Soon he falls on hard times. So in 1841, Barnum takes out a loan to purchase a museum in downtown Manhattan. He calls it Barnum's American Museum and begins filling it with wonders and marvels from around the world. These include human beings, albinos, conjoined twins, bearded ladies, people of abnormal height or weight, all artifacts in Barnum's museum to be ogled by the public. His prize exhibit is a five-year-old boy named Charles Stratton, better known by his stage name, General Tom Thumb. Stratton has dwarfism and stands at just over two feet tall. Barnum struck a deal with Stratton's parents, monetizing their son's condition by teaching him how to sing, dance, and act. Fortunately for Barnum, Stratton proves to be what many call a theatrical prodigy. People come from miles around to watch his shows. And in 1844, Barnum takes his young star on a grand European tour, performing for Queen Victoria in London and the Russian Tsar in St. Petersburg. It's during this tour that Barnum discovers a Swedish opera singer called Jenny Lind, nicknamed the Swedish Nightingale. Recognizing another opportunity, Barnum persuades Lind to return with him to the States, where he organizes a singing tour that rakes in some $500,000, or $15 million today. By 1860, P.T. Barnum is rich and famous beyond his wildest dreams. Soon, however, disaster will strike, forcing the showman to shut the doors of Barnum's American Museum and to turn his hand to another form of popular entertainment. It's July 13, 1865. An employee inside P.T. Barnum's American Museum runs from his office, crying out fire. Within minutes, the entire building is ablaze. Flames and smoke billow from the windows, and the live creatures trapped inside, monkeys, snakes, hippos, even kangaroos, are burned alive. The fire is a catastrophe for Barnum, but he's never one to stay down for long. With his building burned to the ground, Barnum takes his show on the road, in 1870, he establishes P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. In a few years' time, this new endeavor will bring P.T. Barnum into contact with a fellow circus impresario, a man 37 years his junior, in a fateful encounter that will change American entertainment forever. It's August 1880, a year before Barnum and Bailey meet. Inside a big top tent just outside Kalamazoo, Michigan, P.T. Barnum's traveling circus is about to put on a show. Tonight, P.T. Barnum stands behind the curtain, peeking out at the excited audience members as they file in. At 70 years old, Barnum is beginning to fray at the edges. He looks his age, with his gray hair and jowly skin. But when he emerges from behind the curtain, dressed in a sleek top hat and tails, the aging showman lights up commands the room. 
The audience watches with delight as the show unfolds before their eyes. It's an enchanting evening filled with trapeze artists and acrobats, scantily clad women fired from cannons, fire eaters, lion tamers, and an entire menagerie of exotic beasts and human curiosities. By now, P.T. Barnum has started billing his attraction as the greatest show on Earth, and few would dispute that claim. And yet, despite his success, Barnum is still not satisfied. While his circus is the most famous in America, his competitors are catching up. Barnum will later write that prior to 1880, no traveling show in the world bore any comparison. All but one, a traveling roadshow managed by a man named James Anthony Bailey. Born James McGinnis in Detroit in 1947, Bailey was orphaned at a young age before running away to join the circus at 12, where he soon came into the employ of a man named Frederick Bailey, the proprietor of the Bailey Circus, believed to be the oldest in America. Before long, James McGinnis assumed the name of his new employer, and by the age of 22, James Bailey was managing the Bailey Circus alongside his business partner, Mr. James E. Cooper. The Cooper and Bailey Circus quickly emerged as the main rival to P.T. Barnum's show. But Barnum wasn't worried by Bailey's growing success. In fact, Barnum attributes it to his own creative genius. Later writing, Bailey's show adopted my manner of dealing with the public, and consequently, it grew in popularity. But in 1880, Bailey's circus does have one unique advantage. In March of that year, one of Bailey's elephants gives birth to a calf known as Little Columbia, the first elephant born on U.S. soil. Barnum is green with envy. He wants the baby elephant in his show, so he writes a telegram to James Bailey offering to purchase Little Columbia for the extravagant sum of $100,000, over $3 million today. When Bailey receives the telegram, he doesn't take Barnum's offer, but he does use it to his advantage. Bailey reprints the telegram on posters for his circus beneath the caption, What Barnum Thinks of the Baby Elephant. Outsmarted, Barnum isn't angry. He's impressed by Bailey's gumption and his business acumen. He declares Bailey a foeman worthy of my steel. But instead of going to war with his rival, he decides to try and join forces. Before long, P.T. Barnum proposes to James Bailey that they merge their shows, forming one giant circus. As Bailey considers Barnum's offer, he's aware that the two men are polar opposites. Barnum is tall, flamboyant, and expansive. Bailey is short, reserved, and meticulous. But Bailey realizes that with his own business acumen and Barnum's flair for showbiz, they will make a formidable duo. So Bailey buys out his former partner, Mr. Cooper, and goes into business with P.T. Barnum. Before long, the pair announces a series of performances to take place in the spring of 1881 in New York, followed by a U.S. tour. But in the months to come, Barnum falls ill. Racked with abdominal pain and unable to eat, he loses over 70 pounds. Luckily, Barnum recovers, but his doctors sent him to Florida to rest and recuperate. With Barnum convalescing, the task of getting the new venture off the ground falls to the ever-meticulous James Bailey. Bailey conducts countless interviews promoting the show. He tells one reporter that the circus will be the best in history, complete with electric light and even brighter talent. Most significantly, he says the circus will be big. So big that for the first time ever, it will be performed on three stages. Bailey promises that this new three-ring circus will be one of the greatest artistic successes of all time. Just in time for the opening performance, Barnum returns to his Hippodrome in New York on March 28, 1881. In advance of the spectacle, Barnum and Bailey invited hundreds of newspaper editors from across the country and paid them to bring them to New York. As Barnum will later write, it was a very costly piece of advertising, which yielded us a magnificent return.
with 370 performers, a brass band, steam-powered pipe organs, and a coterie of exotic animals, all magnificently arrayed in fine silk costumes. Barnum and Bailey's greatest show on earth truly lives up to its name. After performing in New York, the show goes on tour, traveling from town to town, attracting audiences in the tens of thousands. The tour is a triumph, but it is also the last chapter in the story of P.T. Barnum. In 1891, after a long and controversial career in show business, P.T. Barnum passes away. But even after his partner's death, James Bailey continues to grow the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Between 1897 and 1902, Bailey tours the show around Europe, delighting crowds from Paris to Berlin. But meanwhile, back in America, a new outfit is growing in popularity, a rival circus run by five brothers from Wisconsin who go by the now-famous name Ringling. It's April 11, 1905, in Mount Vernon, New York. As James Anthony Bailey, proprietor of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, lies on his deathbed. The cause of his illness is unknown, but doctors believe it's exacerbated by stress. When Bailey returned from Europe in 1902, he was faced with a new rival, a circus run by the so-called Ringling Brothers, five siblings from Wisconsin. The Ringling Brothers started off as a small variety show, touring the Midwestern prairies in horse-drawn wagons. But during Bailey's absence, the Ringling Brothers Circus took off, and in no small part because they took advantage of advances in locomotion, using steam trains to facilitate their tours. Bailey's known about the Ringling Brothers for some time. In 1884, he met with their leader, John Ringling, to agree to a division of territory. Their circus would stay in the West, while Bailey's would perform in the East. But while Bailey was in Europe, the Ringling Brothers broke those terms establishing their show on the eastern seaboard, growing in wealth and influence and forcing Bailey out of the market. But by 1905, Bailey is too ill to fight back. Before long, the aging showman passes away at his home in Mount Vernon. With Bailey gone, the Ringling brothers set out to monopolize the circus market. Two years after Bailey's death, they approach his widow to purchase the Barnum and Bailey Circus. And for several years, the Ringling brothers operate the two circuses separately, But then, on March 29, 1919, 31 years and one day after Barnum & Bailey first debuted their combined act, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus debuts in New York. The poster depicts the five Ringling Brothers, Otto, Charles, Alfred, John, and Albert, alongside Barnum & Bailey, beneath the caption, The Circus Kings of All Time. Under its new title, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus dominates American popular entertainment for decades, employing hundreds of performers and bringing delight to millions whenever the circus comes to town. But as the 20th century wears on, movies and television gradually replace the circus as America's favorite form of live entertainment. The golden age of the circus begins to dwindle and fade. In 1956, the Ringling Brothers perform their final show under a big-top tent. Their circus will remain operational until 2017, performing live in sports stadiums and music venues across the country. Then in 2021, it's announced that the Ringling Brothers Circus will return in 2023. In 1919, John Ringling was asked how the circus would adapt to the changing times. He replied, It will never be changed to any great extent, because men and women will always long to be young again. But there have been few times in which the circus was more popular than when P.T. Barnum and James Anthony Bailey merged their acts to become the greatest show on earth 
on March 28, 1881. Next on History Daily, March 29, 1865, General Ulysses S. Grant launches the Appomattox Campaign, which will ultimately force the surrender of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Derek Barons. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.
It's July 14, 1789, and an angry mob is marching through the streets of Paris. Among the crowd is a young peasant laborer. Like the rest of the people here, this laborer has grown dissatisfied with the political system in France, a monarchical system in which the bourgeois enjoy a life of luxury while the working class can barely afford to feed their families. Starving and desperate, the laborer and his fellow workers flood the streets armed with pitchforks and torches to take a stand against the monarchy. Up ahead, the laborer sees the stone walls of the Bastille, the notorious prison where people who speak out against the monarchy are kept. This is where the mob is headed. The very sight of the Bastille's towering battlements fills the young laborer with anger. He raises his pitchfork and charges. Despite the threat of cannons mounted atop the battlements, the laborer joins a small party who fearlessly vault over the outer wall, scramble across a narrow moat, and rush up to the gates. The laborer and the rest of the party repeatedly strike at the wrought iron chains of the drawbridge until eventually they break and the drawbridge comes crashing down across the moat. The Bastille is now defenseless against the mob. And as they rush in, they bring with them the spirit of revolution. The storming of the Bastille, as this event is known, represents the climactic high point of the French Revolution, in which peasants and workers rose up against the ruling elites and established France as a republic. The events that shook the nation in 1787 will become the founding myth of modern France, free from the shackles of monarchy and galvanized by the values of liberty, equality, and fraternity. One hundred years after the French Revolution, a monument will be displayed in Paris as a testament to everything France has achieved during its first century as a republic. And though this monument, the Eiffel Tower, is beloved today, in its time it was a source of acrimony and bitter disagreement prior to its official inauguration, which took place on March 31, 1889. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is March 31st, the inauguration of the Eiffel Tower. It's May 1884, five years before the Eiffel Tower opens. A 28-year-old engineer sits at home in Paris, France, sketching designs for a proposed city monument. In the warm glow of his gas lamp, Maurice Caiclon is outlining plans for what will eventually become the tallest man-made structure on Earth. But at this early stage, Maurice doubts whether it will even be possible. Alongside the design for the proposed monument, he sketches scale drawings of other famous landmarks, the Statue of Liberty, the Arc de Triomphe, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. But the monument Maurice is designing will dwarf these other structures, standing over 300 meters tall. Maurice wonders if a structure standing this high can withstand the wind it will face. He worries it will be too expensive or require too much raw material. As Maurice thinks about these potential problems, he continues drawing. And by the time he's finished, he's come up with a plan for a 1,000-foot tower, describing it as four lattice girders standing apart at the base and coming together at the top, joined together by metal trusses at regular intervals. 
Maurice carries out a few quick mental calculations and realizes, with mounting excitement, that this design solves some of the potential problems he was worrying about. The wrought iron will be lighter and cheaper than stone. The curved uprights and lattice structure will decrease wind resistance. Maurice titles his bold design the Great Pylon. The following morning, Maurice and another engineer, Emile Nouguier, showed the design to their boss, a man in his early 50s named Gustave Eiffel. Maurice and Emile worked for Gustave's architectural firm, which specializes in railway bridges and metal viaducts. Gustave has a good reputation as one of France's leading civil engineers, but to his mind, he's not yet secured his architectural legacy. Bridges and viaducts are one thing, but to have his name forever attached to a great monument, well, that's how legends are born. So in 1884, when the French government launched a contest to design a centerpiece for the upcoming World's Fair in Paris, Gustave saw an opportunity. He decided to submit a proposal, ordering his team of engineers to get to work on a design at once. The World's Fair is an international exhibition held to showcase a nation's industry, technology, and culture. Since the first exhibition held in Prague in 1791, World's Fairs have displayed dazzling technological inventions across the globe in cities like New York, London, Barcelona, and Chicago. The 1889 World's Fair is of particular significance to the French hosts. It's the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution, when the people of France rose up against the ruling elites, toppled the monarchy, and established France as a republic. A century later, the French government wants to showcase how far the nation has come since throwing off the shackles of monarchy, how it has flourished and grown into one of the world's leading industrial powerhouses. France's president at this time, Jules Grévy, wants the 1889 World's Fair to be the grandest spectacle yet. For Grévy, a mere showcase of French inventions and feats of mechanical engineering isn't enough. He wants a centerpiece that will be the envy of the world, a pièce de résistance that will loom over the proceedings and remind the millions of visitors to the fair about France's artistic and industrial capabilities. Immediately after Grévy launched this competition, architectural companies around the country began developing their ideas for the monument. The only requirements were that the structure had to reflect France's engineering prowess and it had to be easily dismantled 20 years after the World's Fair. Maurice and Emile think they've hit these objectives, nervously slide their design across Gustave Eiffel's desk. But Gustave looks at the great pylon with confusion. His lip curls up contemptuously as he asks, what on earth is this? Maurice tries to explain, but Gustave isn't interested in discussion. He's seen all he needs to see of this strange, unorthodox structure. He dismisses the two engineers, who slope off despondently. But during the course of the day, Gustave keeps glancing down at the drawing. There's something about this unique design that compels and intrigues him. By the end of the afternoon, Gustave has changed his mind. He calls Maurice and Emile back into his office and tells the two young engineers to carry out further study on the methods by which such a structure could feasibly be built. Several weeks later, the two men present their finished version to Gustave. The engineer is pleased with what he sees, and he quickly buys the rights to the patent. But there's one thing Gustave isn't sure of, the name. The Great Pylon doesn't have much of a ring to it, so instead, Gustav renames the monument after himself, the Eiffel Tower. In the autumn of 1884, the designs for the Eiffel Tower are displayed at an international arts fair called the Exhibition of Decorative Arts in Paris. 
There, the image catches the eye of the French President Jules Grévy and the Minister of Trade, Edouard Lacroix, who are immediately taken by its sheer, unprecedented size. As Gustave never tires of reminding people, the Eiffel Tower will be the tallest man-made structure ever built. This is an accolade the French politicians cannot resist. So in the summer of 1885, Gustave's proposal wins the contest. A construction site is selected on the Champ de Mars, a green space in the very center of the city. Work begins two years later, in January of 1887. Gustave is closer than ever before to securing his legacy. If all goes to plan, he will never have to design another railway bridge or viaduct ever again. But as the foundations of the Eiffel Tower begin rising from the earth, vocal opposition to the monument will grow, until the tower that sought to celebrate French unity instead threatens to tear Paris apart. It's February 14, 1887, in Paris, two years before the opening of the Eiffel Tower. Gustave sits in his office reading a newspaper, but he's distracted. His thoughts are consumed by the work happening outside. On the Champ de Mars in the middle of the city, construction is well underway on the new monument. Metal girders swing from cranes. Hundreds of workmen hammer rivets into place, while roaring furnaces belch clouds of black smoke across the sky. Gustave has plenty of reason to be happy. Everything's going according to plan so far, and Gustav knows that's no small feat. The conditions of the World's Fair competition stipulate that the Eiffel Tower is supposed to be deconstructed in 20 years' time, and as a result, the frame of the structure consists of 18,000 separate pieces of wrought iron pre-assembled in Gustav's factory. In order to allow for straightforward disassembly, no component can be drilled or shaped on-site. Instead, everything must be bolted together with rivets. It's a demanding, meticulous process, one that Gustav is confident will earn him countless accolades, as well as the respect of his fellow engineers. Still, despite the success of initial construction, Gustav's spirits are low. Today, he sits in his office, reading a copy of the Parisian newspaper Le Temps. The headline explains his sour mood, reading, Artists Against the Eiffel Tower. Shortly after construction began on the tower in January of 1887, 300 prominent writers, artists, and architects formed the so-called Committee of 300, one member for every meter of the Eiffel Tower. Among them were the notable architect Charles Garnier and the famous writer Guy de Maupassant. Today, that committee has published a letter in Le Temps. As Gustave scans the article, the color slowly drains from his face. The letter reads in part, We writers, painters, sculptors, architects, and passionate devotees of the hitherto untouched beauty of Paris protest with all our strength against the erection of this useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower. Alongside the letter is a mocking cartoon of Gustav himself, standing pridefully alongside the Eiffel Tower as it looms domineeringly over the Egyptian pyramids, a commentary on what the committee members feel is Gustav's arrogance and vanity. A pit of anger and hurt forms in Gustav's stomach. His pride is wounded, but rather than ignoring the criticism, he decides to respond. Gustave feeds a sheet of paper into his typewriter and begins hammering away at the keys, muttering under his breath as he types. He starts, My tower will be the tallest edifice ever erected by man. Then he hesitates, aware that perhaps he should strike a less boastful tone. In the letter, Gustave defends his taste, the beauty of his tower, and his architectural and aesthetic choices. 
Gustave submits his letter to Latente to be published later that week. But as work on the tower continues, the opposition only increases. Nobody has ever built anything of this size before. The mere fact that Gustave is trying makes him, in the eyes of detractors, a lunatic. One headline in the tabloid press reads, Gustave Eiffel has gone mad. But still, construction continues, and the tower reaches further into the sky. Soon, Parisians can see exactly how prominent the Eiffel Tower will appear on their skyline. And by December 1888, over two-thirds of the structure is built. The sheer size of the tower is a marvel to behold. And soon, much of the earlier vitriol is being replaced by awe. One witness describes the workmen hammering rivets into place, stating, With each blow came a shower of sparks, as if they were reaping lightning bolts in the clouds. On March 31st, after two years, two months, and five days of painstaking work, the Eiffel Tower is at last complete. The final stage was the addition of two elevator cars, capable of carrying 65 people at a time. For the grand unveiling, Gustave leads a group of dignitaries to the top, and as he shows them around, he points out the facts of the tower's construction, that it required 73,000 tons of iron, two and a half million rivets, 60 tons of paint. The audible gasps of admiration are music to Gustave's ears. Then, when they reach the top of the tower, Gustave raises a French flag up the pole. 300 meters down below, soldiers fire a 21-gun salute, and the assembled crowd of onlookers voice their hearty support for Gustave's monument. Two months later in May, the Eiffel Tower becomes the centerpiece of the World's Fair. Millions of people from around the globe descend on Paris to marvel at French ingenuity. For Gustave, the highlight of the fair comes when he offers a private tour of the Eiffel Tower to the famous American inventor Thomas Edison. Edison praises Gustave as the brave builder of what he calls a gigantic and original specimen of modern engineering. But despite its increasing popularity, the Eiffel Tower is only meant to remain standing for 20 years. As that milestone approaches, Gustave Eiffel is not ready to say goodbye to his precious creation. Instead, he will fight to ensure the tower remains and that his legacy is secure. It's November 5, 1898, nine years after the opening of the Eiffel Tower. Gustav Eiffel sits in his private office on the top floor. He's nervous because today might very well decide the fate of the structure that bears his name. Since its inauguration, most Parisians have grown accustomed to the sight of the Eiffel Tower on the skyline. Still, for Gustav, the tower is his legacy, the accomplishment for which he will be remembered. And Gustav knows that in 11 years' time, his permit will expire. The tower will be turned over to the city council for disassembly. That is, unless he can convince the powers that be that the tower has more important practical purposes. Early on, Gustav began searching for a scientific justification for the tower's very existence. Eventually, he invited a scientist named Eugene Ducrete to demonstrate that the tower could be used to advance a burgeoning new technology, the wireless telegraph. Gustav is nervous because today, Ducrete will conduct a groundbreaking experiment, attempting to carry out the first wireless telegraphy trials between the Eiffel Tower and the Pantheon of Paris, located two and a half miles away. But soon, Gustave's nerves fade when he learns the experiment is a resounding success. The sheer height of the tower allows the signals to flow uninterrupted. 
And before long, Gustav installs a permanent transmitting station in the tower. In just a few years' time, the station is able to send transmissions as far as London. Eventually, Gustav offers the tower services to the French army, which conducts a series of their own consequential experiments. Then, on January 1, 1910, persuaded by the tower's practical applications, the city council renews Gustav's permit, essentially guaranteeing the Eiffel Tower a permanent place on the Paris skyline. Gustav's persistence and the city's council's decision will pay dividends because during World War I, the radio station atop the Eiffel Tower will become a vital transmitter of crucial military communications. And for decades after the war, the Eiffel Tower will remain the world's tallest building until 1930, when it will be overtaken by the Chrysler Building in New York. Today, the tower, once known as the Great Pylon, attracts 7 million visitors annually, making it the most visited monument in the world. Tourists flock from all corners of the globe to marvel at a structure that was once considered controversial. Today, though, it stands as a symbol of not only French progress, but the brilliance of French engineering, artistry, and originality, the very outcome Gustave Eiffel hoped for when he unveiled his tower on March 31, 1889. Next on History Daily, April 1st, 355 B.C., the cryptic writings of Plato send one of his pupils on a quest for the truth. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.